now, The Federal Drive with Tom Temin, sponsored by GEHA. Hello and thanks for joining us on this Tuesday, February 20th, 2024, seven minutes past the hour. I'm Tom Temin. Our producers are Eric White and Peter Masurlian. Our digital editors, Daisy Thornton, Michelle Sandiford, and Darris Lauderdale. Coming up in this hour of The Federal Drive, small and minority-owned businesses see more opportunity than ever, but it's not easy to get. Plus, what goes on in the Transportation Security Administration's Big Operations Center? Those stories and much more ahead during this hour of The Federal Drive. But first, most federal employees work outside of the Washington, D.C. area. For that 85 percent, the federal executive boards have been helping collaboration since 1961. Now the FEB has a new funding model and a changing structure. Federal News Network's Drew Friedman got more from the Office of Personnel Management's Deputy Associate Director of the FEB program, Kelly DeGraff. Most federal agencies have regional offices in key geographic areas throughout the country. And in each area, the senior executives from these offices, they come together to form the federal executive boards or the FEBs. And they meet regularly to collaborate on projects, to share resources. Um, These boards help the government work better really all over the country. There are 26 boards across the country and each represent an average of 140 agencies, um, which is really impressive. The federal government is the largest federal employer in the United States with approximately 2.2 million employees, and roughly 85% of those employees live outside of the national capital region. And that is who uh, these federal executive boards represent. And they're really integral in advancing community engagement, employee development, um, emergency preparedness efforts, and really making government accessible on the local level. So maybe you can share a little bit more about maybe some specific examples of how FEBs uh, work. You know, you mentioned you have community engagement efforts, you help with emergency preparedness. So what what does that look like or what are some of the things that you work on there? This is my favorite question that I get asked because it is the uh, it's my opportunity to really tell the incredible story of the FEBs. So. They really are instrumental in in several areas, including creating shared training programs that benefit multiple agencies. And uh, these types of things not only streamline costs, but they really also foster that sense of community among federal employees. In fact, just yesterday, so I'm in Seattle. um, I'm in Seattle right now meeting with our, our Seattle board. And yesterday I met with federal employees who are part of the Seattle Leadership Associates Program. And this is a program that brings together emerging leaders from across 170 federal agencies, which I just think is incredible. And they come together and and the program is really about cultivating that next generation of federal leaders. And they do this by equipping them with the skills um, needed to succeed. And they match them with mentors and lead them through special projects. And, you know, this is the example just from the Seattle federal board. And again, I had the opportunity, the pleasure to meet with them yesterday, but most, most FEBs offer similar programs for early career employees. And what is also incredible is that they maintain an active alumni network so that individuals who have been in the program then tend to come back and serve as mentors for these emerging leader, these emerging leaders programs. So that's a, that's a big one is these 
um, these learning and, and professional development opportunities. Um, the FEBs also partner with educational institutions regionally to really work to create uh, diverse talent pipelines into public service. They meet with students, they attend career fairs, they meet with counselors, all to promote um, public service and, and federal employment. They, along those same lines, they um, conduct community outreach. They organize uh, volunteer opportunities like blood drives, clothing drives, um, holiday toy drives, and they lead the combined federal campaign in their regions. Um, the FEBs also conduct interagency emergency exercises, and this is so important. They conduct these exercises in advance of an emergency to be able to establish protocols and identify areas for improvement before an event happens. And they really establish that cohesiveness and, and um, connectedness. For example, New York. Um, New York recently held an exercise that involved, it was in partnership with the New York Emergency Management, and it involved over 60 agencies all coming together um, and really understanding each other's plans and who brings what to the table. Um, two more areas that I'll just that I'll mention that I think are really important. The next one is um, DEIA. Uh, so they, the board sponsored diversity, equity, equity, inclusion, and accessibility committees. Um, these committee these committees come together to implement training programs to address things like unconscious bias and create again those mentorship opportunities to support underrepresented talent. And they really provide a space for these important discussions and the sharing of best practices. And then one of the other um, pieces that is consistent across the boards are recognition programs. The FEBs do a phenomenal job at celebrating the the incredible work of our workforce of, of workforce excellence through these cross agency uh, recognition activities. And while each board is unique, they all focus on core programmatic themes that that really include things like workforce hiring, recruitment leadership development, uh, emergency preparedness, and community community initiatives. Um, it's challenging to single out any one board as they all contribute so significantly in each of these areas. I know that you just started your role very recently. So are there things, you know, in the first few months that you've been in this position that you're going to, that you've been focusing on, or what are some of your, I guess, short-term goals uh, for the FEBs? Yeah, absolutely. So I just um, I just celebrated my second month, um, you know, in in my role, and um, I'll share, Drew, that the FEBs are going through a significant transformation right now, and this transformation is aimed at really solidifying their role as a central resource for interagency collaboration. We like to say beyond the Beltway, right? Um, this reform is known as FEB Forward, and FEB Forward addresses longstanding issues of inconsistent funding and, and fr a fragmented governance structure. So FEB Forward, you know, it introduces a new funding model, it introduces executive leadership and a tri-governance um, council and really a realignment. There's a lot of change that's happening right now. And that's really, I think, important to understand in order for me to really answer your question well because right now my job is to really help us navigate this change. And my focus is on a blend of organizational excellence and uh, meaningful impact. And so working in partnership with the staff, with the boards, with various stakeholders, 
we developed a roadmap for 2024 because 2024 is this transitional year for us. And this roadmap focuses on three pillars. And the first pillar is around uh, building a cohesive organization with inclusive governance. And what this looks like, because you translate this into reality, is this is about crafting a five-year strategic plan um, and refining our mission and refining our vision for greater alignment. So that's the first one, really working to build that cohesive organization. The second pillar is around ensuring excellence and operational impact. This is a dual focus. Um, and the focus of this pillar is on ensuring fiscal accountability, as well as the execution of our flagship programs. We want to make sure that as we're in this year of transition, uh, while we're building almost like a startup and while we're building, that we are still supporting our existing boards and that we are continuing to support those flagship programs that they are known for in their community. And then the third pillar, and you're helping us, you're actually helping us right now reach this third pillar, is elevating the profile of the FEBs. We want to enhance our narrative. We want to do a better job of communicating the value and the contributions of the FEBs. So I would say that that is the, that is the focus for uh, FY24. And then um, that five-year strategic plan as we craft that, and that's going to be crafted with um, input from all of our various stakeholders and staff members. And that will, um, that will guide us then over the next several years. There are so many FEBs that exist, and there's this big network across the country right now. So do you ever see any challenges in trying to communicate or collaborate across all of these different uh, areas? Or how often are you going out in the field like that and communicating with FEB leaders? Yeah, uh, that's a great question. And so one of the one of the initial things when I first came on board was um uh, launched this what what I call a listening tour along with my support staff from headquarters and we came up with a plan um to make sure that uh, it was really important to make sure that before we started to implement anything I I needed to make sure that I understood what the pain points were where the successes were um and what our boards thought should be the the main focus so this listening tour um, first started virtually attending a lot of the board meetings virtually and then over the last month I've been able to um, to visit quite a few so I was in Dallas Fort Worth last month um, last week I was in New York and New Jersey um, and then uh, I think next week or the week after it's it's Pittsburgh so we have this plan um, of of doing this outreach and really getting out with the boards and sitting down with them and hearing hearing what they think FEB forward should um, should be and how we should move, how we should move forward. Talking about going out and reaching out to all of these different FEBs and meeting with them in person, you mentioned that uh, there are, you hear both their successes and their pain points. So maybe can you give an example or two of what are some of the things that FEBs are saying, hey, you know, this could be improved or hey, this is working really well? Yeah, absolutely. So I will say that Overall, there is resounding support for bringing the FEBs under the umbrella of OPM. Um, the boards recognize that move as being um, very strategic and uh, very thoughtful, and that they see it as really enhancing the effectiveness and the reach of the FEBs. And by having 
by having the staff centralized, and this is what I'm hearing as I'm as I'm speaking with the boards, by hearing by having the FEB centralized, we're making our operations more unified and more efficient, which then increases the collaboration and it really positions us to stay focused on key goals. The centralized oversight also makes us more accountable and transparent, which really then improves our overall responsiveness to both government agencies and to the, the public. And so I'm hearing that from the from the boards and they're really excited about the um, about the change. I think that some of the some of the consistent pain points that I hear across the board of the boards is um, very similar to what I hear in also the private sector, there is a great concern about the workforce overall and being able to recruit diverse talent um, into, into public service and how do we as, as public servants compete with the private sector. And so um, that is a concern across all of the boards. And so we are starting to work on strategies of what this looks like. What could an FEB um, strategic initiative look like to really do targeted recruitment and increasing our earlier I talked about the partnerships that we have with different um, academic institutions, community colleges, universities, um, trade schools, etc. And so we're looking at how do we formalize some of these partnerships and really create that pipeline to help reduce some of that um, is some of that uncertainty in what the next uh, what the next legacy of of the public service workforce looks like. You mentioned at the top, there are a number of FEBs that already exist. Are there ways that you are looking to expand the program in the future or expand the reach of FEBs um, beyond what they can reach now? While the FEBs have grown modestly since their since their inception, there really are, which was in, I think, 1961, um, there are still areas across the nation with significant federal activity, but no FEB presence. And so under the FEB Forward Initiative, we're looking at ways to fill these gaps or this white space, as we call it. And this could manifest in a number of different ways. And and some of these include um, the possible addition of new boards, um, expanding the reach of the existing boards by, um, you know, by by advertising their um their leadership training, um, their disaster efforts, their disaster preparedness efforts by incorporating other communities into those efforts. Um, we're looking at, you know, how do we, what makes sense? Because we also don't want to just expand existing boards and have those existing boards lose their local flavor, right? So it's a it's a nuanced balance there. But we also know that we need to reach those other areas that have that significant population of federal employees. And so we're looking at how do we partner with, for example, the Partnership for Public Service? How do we partner with the um, federal executive associations? How do we partner with some of those existing, um, those existing organizations out there where we can really force multiply our efforts by joining, by joining together? So I think that um, there's not, we don't have a, uh, we don't have a firm roadmap or a, a prescriptive roadmap of here's how we're going to do this. I think that in 24 and in 25, we're going to pilot various ways of what this can look like. And 
the one thing that I've talked with staff about is when we pilot, we also have to be um, we also have to be aware and and not be afraid to fail because all pilots don't work. And I also believe that there is a, a very positive element that can come from, and you've probably heard this term before, but from failing forward. So we're going to see what happens and we're going to see how we can how we can fill these gaps. And there'll be some trial and error there, but uh, I think that the opportunities are are really exciting to to uncover. Something else that I, I did want to bring up, and you mentioned this earlier, the funding model for FEBs is, um, I believe, changing or in the process of change. So can you explain a little bit more about how FEBs work is funded? And uh, is that something the Biden administration is trying to um, redirect, I suppose? Absolutely. That's a great question. So historically, Drew, the, the FEBs have really faced two main challenges that have, I think, broadly hindered their effectiveness, Um, not stopped their effectiveness because they've they've been incredibly effective, but those two challenges have been inconsistent funding and that fragmented governance. And so the FEB Forward Initiative is really designed to address both of those challenges by introducing both a more stabilized funding and this centralized approach to um, governance. And so this new this new funding model under the new model agencies who fall under the um, chief financial officers act or the cfo act are authorized to contribute a predetermined amount of funds to opm to support the administration of the feb program this is new before this change before this authorization the FEBs functioned on an ad hoc basis where they relied on voluntary resources from agencies in the specific regions. And it was, the support was inconsistent throughout the, throughout the nation. And so this new funding model really is a game changer. It allows us to have um, this predictable funding allows us to better, you know, plan for allocation of resources, including human capital, um, operational expenses, all leading to really more um, effective program delivery. So we're, we're really excited about the about the new funding model. Kelly, just wrapping up here, I know we've we've covered a lot of ground about what FEDs do and, you know, their importance and, and how far they reach across uh, the nation for the federal workforce. Uh, anything else you can offer in terms of what's the future hold for FEDs or the federal workforce overall? The FEB Forward Initiative that you heard me talk about, it's its not just a short-term solution. It really is a long-term strategy that's strategically designed to meet both current and future challenges. And I think that the, I think that the future of the FEBs is a, we have the opportunity to offer a blueprint for innovation, for agility, and for impact. I think with this streamlined governance and a focus on resource efficiency that we are really setting the stage for seamless interagency collaboration and really public service excellence. And um, I I know this is going to sound corny, but I really believe this. I think that we're not just we're not just adapting to change with the FEBs. We're actually leading it, and our boards are, are are really pioneering and leading this change. And it's all to better serve our federal community, and then ultimately the American people. It's a it's a fantastic place to to be right now. 
Kelly DeGraff is Deputy Associate Director of the Federal Executive Board Program at the Office of Personnel Management. Speaking with Federal News Network's Drew Friedman. Check out Drew's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Still to come, what goes on in the Transportation Security Administration's Big Operations Center? This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. Nearly every moment, a security issue takes place somewhere in the transportation system. Thousands of incidents each week get reported to the Transportation Security Administration's Big Operations Center in Herndon, Virginia. Toby Punchard, Supervisory Air Marshal in Charge, joins me in studio. Mr. Punchard, good to have you with us. Thank you. Great to be here. And tell us about the Transportation Security Operations Center. It's run by someone in the Air Marshal, which I guess I didn't realize was actually under TSA. But what happens in this SOC? The Transportation Security Operations Center is the U.S. government and TSA's primary resource for collaborating, communicating, coordinating, and managing incidents that affect all modes of transportation. And we are unique because we are the only operations center in the U.S. government doing what we do. We have partners that we work with very frequently, daily and hourly in some cases. Those include the Federal Aviation Administration and the Department of Defense primarily. We use some of their resources to help us accomplish our mission because our mission is so much wider in breadth. But again, we are the only operations center in the government doing what we do, coordinating, collaborating, communicating, and managing incidents that affect all modes of transportation. And those include maritime, pipeline, passenger rail, mass transit, and aviation, which is our biggest industry, our biggest stakeholder. And so then who reports into that center such that you know what's going on? We look at incident management through two lenses. Here in the United States, we get information from various sources and resources. Primarily, TSA has federal security directors assigned to specific areas of responsibility around the country. Each of those federal security directors has a coordination center, which is a smaller operation center, and they feed and communicate directly into the TSOC, into our operation center, for incidents affecting modes of transportation in their specific areas of responsibility. We also have industry stakeholders. We have memorandums of understanding and security directives requiring certain transportation stakeholders to report incidents that affect transportation to us. Globally, the second lens, how we manage it globally, we take in information from, again, a number of resources. We have key personnel assigned to areas of responsibility around the world. They're based in countries around the world, and they provide oversight for transportation security in those areas and in those countries to make sure that those countries' aviation security apparatus is up to the United States standard. Sure. But when you say things that affect transportation, I mean, except for the weather, which can affect an entire region or a continent of transportation, everything else that happens in transportation is local. A door blows off a plane and it lands somewhere and it landed and the door is in somebody's backyard or a train rams a tank truck, but it's a local effect. And so what constitutes something that is worthy of being reported up to you that requires coordination that everyone else should know what's going on. Most people see the end product of those events. They don't realize how complicated those events are to manage during the incident. 
and to get to the outcome that you see reported later in situations where there's an incident affecting, and we'll use aviation as an example. And I talked about our partners like the Federal Aviation Administration. When those events are occurring, there's a lot of communication between the stakeholders that are invested in that incident. Again, the Federal Aviation Administration, the stakeholder or the airline that's involved, and the Transportation Security Operations Center, along with all the resources we have in place on the ground at the specific airport that's going to be affected by the event. So that could be fire and rescue, potentially. So therefore, it could become a regional event. State, federal, local resources in that area of responsibility for that incident. We're all in communication to help manage and work through that incident and ultimately recover to normal operations. Right. So if if something was happening that could affect all aviation at Dulles, even though it involved one plane, say a wheel falls off, and sometimes they land and the gear doesn't come down or there's a wheel crooked, you know, that could affect that runway potentially. And therefore, BWI would need to know, Reagan National would also need to know. Is that a good example of the type of thing? Those incidents have ripple effects across the aviation industry. So when something happens at Dulles, it does have a ripple effect across the industry. And that's part of our role One of our primary roles is the big picture, keeping our eye on the big picture, making sure senior leadership is informed of the ramifications of the incident on the national transportation system and ultimately informing them so they can make decisions to help recover from the incident as we work through it. We're speaking with Toby Punchard. He's supervisory air marshal in charge of the Transportation Security Operations Center in Herndon, Virginia. And how often a day does something happen that causes incoming information and therefore compiling and outgoing information from the center. I mentioned the various resources we use to take in information. And I'll give you an example of the workload just in volume of calls. The Transportation Security Operations Center takes in approximately 13,000 calls a month related to incidents affecting transportation. And again, that's all modes of transportation. We signify around 30 to 40 of those a day as significant, meaning these are the ones that should get the attention. These are the ones that have the potential for the most impact. And of those, there's a triage, and that's where we talk about incident management of the three different levels that we triage those to determine what kind of resources we want to apply to it. Right. So there's more than one an hour, basically, all the time. In terms of volume of reporting that comes into the TSOC, definitely, definitely more than one an hour. And what is the mode that produces the most calls in a year? Aviation is our largest stakeholder, the largest industry, and our biggest responsibility that we bear is the aviation industry because of the scope of travel. TSA screened more people this year comparatively than ever before. The travel, the aviation industry is continuously breaking records in way of travel and passenger throughput. Yeah, I've noticed, and (laughs) being at an airport. And with respect to the things that TSA screens for, the millions of people a year that go by screening operations at the airports, do any of those happenings or findings ever make their way to the level of the Security Operations Center? Every day. I mentioned the coordination centers in the specific regions, different regions of the nation that are controlled by the federal security directors. They have standards, reporting standards, to the Transportation Security Operations Center. Anytime there's, for instance, a weapon discovered at a checkpoint, that triggers a notification to the Transportation Security Operations Center, and we can monitor that incident as they work through it. 
Yeah, so it's not every knucklehead bringing a big bottle of shampoo, but the knucklehead bringing a gun to a checkpoint, that would make it to the center. Yes. There are prohibited items that obviously aren't allowed to be introduced into secure areas of airports. Not all of those pose a direct threat to the transportation industry. Those that do pose a threat, obviously explosives, weapons, uh, that criteria of prohibited items are automatic notifications to the Transportation Security Operations Center. I can see where that could fill up the the center every hour. And Walk us through the building. What does it look like? Is it like a NASA-type thing where you have 50 rows of people at big screens? The Transportation Security Operations Center is in a building we call the Freedom Center, and it's located in Herndon, Virginia. It's separate from TSA headquarters. The building itself houses several operations programs for the Transportation Security Administration, including the TSOC. The TSOC itself is... An auditorium, if you will, if you imagine, with huge screens on the wall, aviation radar tracks on the wall, a floor of people all working at different desks, performing different functions. It's loud. There are broadcasts overhead constantly from the Federal Aviation Administration. Domestic event network is constantly broadcasting. It's a very busy place from the outside looking in, but it's controlled chaos, uh, which is what makes it remarkable and unique. Everyone knows their job. They love their job. Uh, They're happy to come to work, and they appreciate the challenge and the nature of what we do. Sure. Is it mostly federal employees, or is it uh, what's the contractor ratio inside there? It is, for the most part, federal employees. In looking at what's going on there, you know, my window on the world is Flight Radar 24 on my phone, and when you shrink the world small enough, it looks like it's covered in airplanes, right? A lot of human beings are in motion from point A to point B in carriers of one sort or another all the time. It must strike you how important all of this really is. It is, and we can go back to the discussion around the building. It's a great point. When you come into the building, in the main lobby of the building are artifacts from 9-11. We have steel beam from the World Trade Centers, surrounded by some of the rubble from the Pentagon, as well as a piece of Flight 93. And that serves as a reminder not just for those of us that remember 9-11 and know the genesis of what brought us to where we are now and why we do what we do. We have a lot of employees that were very young, probably don't remember 9-11 when it happened, maybe a few employees that weren't even born now when 9-11 happened. So it's, it's a reminder for them also when they come into the building, they see the monuments, they understand where we began and how the breadth of our mission expanded to what it is now. Toby Punchard is Supervisory Air Marshal in charge. He's connected to the Transportation Security Operations Center in Herndon, Virginia. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on your flight schedule. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, Congress can't be too concerned about the state of affairs. But first, small and minority-owned businesses see more opportunity than ever, but have trouble accessing it. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Tammen here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Tammen here on Federal News Network. Gigantic federal spending programs outside of regular appropriations look like a big opportunity to small and minority-owned businesses. That's according to a group called Reimagining Main Street, which surveyed its constituents. Joining me with more, the executive director of Reimagining Main Street, Tammy Halevi. Ms. Halevi, good to have you with us. Good morning. Glad to be here. 
And let's begin with reimagining Main Street. It sounds like redoing hub zones or something, but tell us about your organization briefly. So Reimagine Main Street is a cross-sector, multi-stakeholder network of folks who meet regularly. We started meeting in the wake of the shelter-in-place orders during the pandemic to share intelligence and understand what was going on. Over time, that has evolved to focus on ensuring growth for small businesses and the people they employ on MLK Boulevard, Cesar Chavez Ways, Chinatowns, and Main Streets across the country. And what we do is we've got the network that meets regularly to exchange insights. What are you hearing? What are you seeing? How does it look from your perspective if you're a corporation, if you're an organization that finances small businesses, if you're an organization that is an advocate? And then we do regular surveys of small businesses to understand where they stand on various issues and how that might differ by race, ethnicity, gender, and other dimensions. All right. And what were some of the top-line findings in the most recent survey? It sounds like they really like the Inflation Reduction Act and the Chips and Science Act and some of those other big landmark pieces of legislation. Yep. So what we wanted to understand was how business owners experience contracting in both the public and the private sectors. And what we found that I think is both super important and maybe a little surprising is that diverse owned and small businesses have the capacity for contracting. And they say that government contracting is critical for their business strategies. But the problem is, as you may expect, generally don't think the playing field is level for small and diverse businesses to compete. What is it that tilts that playing field, do they feel? I think there are three things in particular. One is folks told us that they don't typically have relationships with contracting officers. They don't necessarily know when opportunities are available. And frequently, which is a real issue for smaller businesses, the size of the contract is too big for them to credibly compete. Yeah. So those are pretty daunting challenges. And as you probably know, the government spends a significant portion, probably 24 percent of contracting dollars, but it seems to be within a closed universe of small businesses. Indeed. So federal contracting in fiscal year 2022 exceeded $690 billion. So we're talking about real money. We're talking about real opportunities, and that's just at the federal level. Uh, Folks in our surveys also, of course, compete for state and municipal contracts as well. But the opportunity is huge, and frankly, it's not just an opportunity for the business owners. It's opportunity for a more flexible supply chain from the contracting side, and it's an opportunity for innovation and competition as well. Do you think that perhaps your constituent members are looking too much at doing direct prime contracting, where you have to know a lot, and it can take two years from the time you begin to try to get the first contract, versus having a position on one of the large government-wide acquisition contracts or subbing you know, for a big prime? So it's interesting. We asked folks how they compete. And as you would expect, there's a broad distribution of respondents in the survey who are primes versus subs. And many of them compete as both, sometimes as prime, sometimes as sub. I think there's a different set of challenges when you're competing as a sub. But I think your point is very well taken that there are lots of different ways for a small and diverse business to compete for federal contracting. We're speaking with Tammy Halevi. She's executive director of Reimagining Main Street. And what does the population that you deal with look like in terms of what it is they offer? 
because lots of small businesses enter the market as, say, IT services contractors. But that's pretty competitive. Maybe someone needs a new manufacturer of gyroscopes for the DOD. That's not so easy. Yep. So the sample in the survey was broadly distributed, virtually every industry you can think of, and a whole range of offers, products and services, high-tech and very low-tech. We did pull out a segment of the survey to understand businesses that could compete in the Investing in America program. So as you mentioned, IRA, CHIPS, and the rest of it. And Nearly a third at 29% of the respondents compete in what we would characterize as investing in America businesses, manufacturing, high tech, green tech, construction. And many of those businesses are winning contracts today. So competing effectively, what we did see was that there was a large portion of businesses in the sample who don't know what the Investing in America opportunities are and how they might compete. So there's a bit of a mixed story there. Those who are you know, making the high-tech gyroscope are frequently unique and well-positioned, and others who either could be making the high-tech gyroscope because they have an adjacent capability that could be applied, don't necessarily know where and how to compete. In other words, the government is a gigantic opportunity living right next door to them. They just can't find the front door to get in. That's exactly right. It's a challenge to know which door to open uh, and maybe what's the behind door number three. Sure. And from your experience, what do you think the government could do, the agencies could do, the contracting officers even, to maybe make it easier for people to understand how to get in that front door? I think there's a few things. The first, and the Biden administration has done quite a good job, is intentional engagement, both setting targets, establishing incentives, and making it clear that competition should include small and diverse-owned businesses. I think the second piece is related to this size dimension, and that is unbundling contracts so that they can be competed in more let's call it digestible chunks that can be more closely managed and arguably more competition for the sort of right-sized contracts. And what about some of the reporting and compliance requirements that, frankly, make people find the front door and say, forget it, I'm not going there? Run run for the back door. Look, the survey respondents told us universally that Government contracting is far more burdensome than corporate contracting, and that was obviously among the sample who compete for both. I think there are ways probably to reduce that burden, but let us be clear, there's an obligation for much of that reporting and much of that transparency, and so striking the balance is not an easy thing. If you use large corporates as a proxy for some government agencies, there are ways to reduce the administrative burden and still achieve all of the necessary components of on-time delivery and quality delivery, but it's government. Sure. And just a detail question, did security clearance requirements come up at all in the survey? Interesting. We asked a few questions about barriers. We asked questions about financial barriers. We asked about IT barriers, and we did have uh, security clearances ever prevented you from getting a contract. The share of respondents for whom the security clearance was a significant barrier was far lower than others. Not going to say it wasn't an issue, but did not emerge as um, kind of top of the list. So the barriers then are? Relationships with contracting officers, awareness of opportunities, size of the contracts. For the majority of businesses, 
financing is not a challenge, but for the businesses for whom financing is a challenge, it's a persistent challenge. And for the most part, if we can solve the awareness to compete and the size of the contracts, I think a larger share of government contracting could move to small and diverse businesses. Yeah, maybe we need community college classes and how to operate SAM, you know, so people could find <laughs> out what's going on. I'm sure you, the enrollment would be high. Tammy Halevi is executive director of Reimagining Main Street. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. And we'll post this interview along with a link to more information about that survey at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, Congress can't be too concerned about the state of affairs. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio. Russian brutality on parade once again. No end in sight for the Middle East conflict. No federal 2024 budget. And the border crisis rolling on. What a great time for Congress to take a recess. But that's what they've done. For a closer look at the honeydew list, we turn to Bloomberg Government Deputy News Director Lauren Duggan. And there is plenty to do, though, Lauren, isn't there? There really is. And there are some key deadlines coming up as soon as next week and the week following that really are going to force action by Congress when they get back from this break, which is about two weeks for the Senate and about a week and a half for the House um, from when they left to when they get back. So, um, yeah, you're right. There's no shortage of things to be concerned about on Capitol Hill. And as lawmakers are either in their districts or traveling abroad to things like the Munich conference that we saw at the end of last week. So, you know, certainly a lot on their list. And not the least of which is the looming deadline when they get back for the continuing resolution to expire. That's right. We have two deadlines coming up. Just to remember people, they split it apart this time around. March 1st is the deadline for four of the bills covering about 20% of funding. And then March 8th for the eight bills that cover about 80% of the funding. So two pretty quick deadlines to have to wrestle with when they get back. Uh, There's probably discussions going on over the phone, even with people uh, scattered across the country and the world, but we will be needing to see text pretty quickly if they're going to do something before that March 1st deadline. And there's a lot of pressure on Mike Johnson in particular, the Speaker of the House, about what he's going to do and how he's going to approach this. Because even the next continuing resolution, if that's how they go, that's a law that they have to get together and write and pass and et cetera, et cetera. Right. And just a handful of days, get that drafted and run it through all the traps that you have to and figure out procedurally how to get it to the floor. And the stopgap bills have been problematic for first Kevin McCarthy when he was speaker. That kind of led to his ouster. And then even the one that Mike Johnson got them to pass last year was um, not done happily by his membership and required a lot of Democratic support. And on the other fronts of Israel and Ukraine aid, it's not so much that the House conservative end of the Republicans have expressed opposition to those things. They just are using it as a wedge for more on border security, although details of what they want are not all that clear. Right. It's kind of stuck right now. The Senate passed its $95 billion aid package for Ukraine, Israel, Indo-Pacific. Nothing for the border and no border security language because the earlier package that had been negotiated over months didn't have enough support and was removed from the bill so they could move forward with what they had. In the House, the the going 
you know, if you listen to the president, if you listen to Senate Democrats, put this bill on the floor and it would pass. And there's a case to be made that it might. But Mike Johnson has said he won't do that yet. So they're, they're sort of stuck on that issue until they figure out what to do. Mike Johnson would say we've passed strong border security language in H.R. 2, but Democrats have opposed that bill. It doesn't stand a chance of getting through the Senate, given the makeup there. So they're in a stalemate. The one thing we saw at the end of the week was a group of moderates in the House release a slimmed down package, about $66 billion for Ukraine, Israel, and these other there's issues that could potentially be a path forward. But again, they left town without necessarily a plan on how to address this issue. But maybe these looming spending deadlines are a vehicle or a moment to reflect on how to act on that. And maybe the question of this Navalny death that happened last week could maybe, I don't know, get them more sensitized to the fact that it really is a desperate situation between Ukraine and the I was going to say the Soviet Union and Russia, and that we're dealing with something that's not what we want spread over the continent when you see what Vladimir Putin is capable of. There, there have been a lot of discussions about Ukraine, and there are a group of people who don't want to continue funding it, or some people like former President Trump and others who have talked about maybe doing it as a loan instead of as straight funding that is really helping the military complex in the U.S. help produce these weapons or replace what's already been sent over. So, you know, I think that the Navalny developments will be brought up and discussed as part of this, like those senators who are in Munich and hearing probably from Zelensky directly about um, what what he thinks and bringing up Navalny and things like that. So. You're, you're right. I mean, the looming Russian threat is part of all this. And it, supporting Ukraine is about also um, warding off future wars or future conflict in Eastern Europe and beyond. We're speaking with Lauren Duggan, deputy news director of Bloomberg government. And then there is poor Alejandro Mayorkas. Well, he won't be impeached in the next couple of weeks because the house is out. But is that going to all be revived? It just seems like, I don't know, what are they going to accomplish with it since it's not going to get to the Senate or through the Senate? Well, we saw that House vote by one vote actually agree to impeach him once Majority Leader Steve Scalise came back from cancer treatment, and he was the deciding vote in that. Um, the trial will have to kick off, at least in a in perhaps a very brief fashion when the Senate comes back. The House managers will go over, announce their charges, and they'll swear in the senators as jurors, and then they'll figure out what to do. They have some options. They could have a trial. They could send it to a committee and say, do the committee review the evidence? Or they could maybe have a vote to just end it pretty quickly. Quickly. But all that is happening in that comeback week, which, just like we've discussed, has that spending deadline at the end of it. So a lot of pressure probably to resolve this or come to some sort of alternative arrangement pretty quickly so they can get back to the business at hand, which includes funding the government. And those of us that live down in the weeds wonder about the FAA authorization. That's also in limbo and kind of an important agency if you fly somewhere. Yeah, definitely a big bill. Has to be dealt with separately from appropriations because of just the way FAA operations have this trust fund that gets ticket taxes and other things flowing into it and then flowing back out. Um, That legislation expires March 8th on that second of the two spending deadlines. House has passed a bill. The Senate committee in charge of it approved something recently. They have to reconcile all that and figure out what to do. I'm not sure if we'll see a Senate debate separately or if they'll work on an agreement that can get through both chambers. It might be a tall order to do all of that by March 8th. And as you note, um, there's a lot happening in the aviation space with the Boeing 737 MAX and the doors there and the scrutiny around that and just the desire to pass some legislation around safety and other things important to the aviation sector. So that is a pretty big bill that's kind of overtaken by all these other pieces of legislation. And there were some nominations, too, that were close to action. But again, the Senate gone for two weeks. So what are some of those? Yeah, I think we'll see. 
some more action on that when they get back there. You know, there's a uh, Dellinger at the office of special counsel has been held up, but might be a path forward on that. Uh, we could see even Sean Patrick Maloney to be the OECD. He's a former rep, but that was held up for a while, but kind of an ethics arrangement he agreed to might allow that to move forward. And then judicial nominations. I think we'll see more action on that at the committee level and then on the floor, because in this last year of the Biden administration with a Democratic Senate, there is an imperative to make some progress on filling those slots to kind of leave that lasting imprint because as we know judicial nominees are for life so getting that person in there can be a big deal and we have one cabinet opening still that um, julie sue for the labor department that one still seems stalled Uh, we'll have to see if there's going to be more action or hearings on that which uh, the ranking republican on the committee has called for and when they do get back it's march and then the next thing you know it's almost campaign season because the presidential race is an internal function in the country not so much the congressional races but at what point do they lose interest in some of the details here and start worrying about their own fannies coming back especially in the house certainly the fall there will be a lot of pressure around that and they are due to be out all of august and all of october that september session obviously a government funding deadline so they have to do something but it will be hanging over everything and you can even see with um, donald trump and his position on legislation is trickling through to how republicans are voting and and approaching some of these major topics Um, and there are congressional primaries starting in early march as well including a really big day on march 5th where i think five states and 115 districts will be on the ballot so elections are going to be everything in the coming months lots of fun lauren duggan is deputy News Director of Bloomberg Government. As always, thanks so much. Thank you. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to The Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. The federal government publishes a lot of information about its spending and its programs. The trouble is finding the exact details about any program you might care about can be a major research project. That's finally changing. Last week, the Office of Management and Budget rolled out the first ever government-wide inventory of all federal programs, most of them anyway. Joining me with the details, Federal News Network's Jared Serbu. Jared, let's begin with what have they actually built here? So it is called the Federal Program Inventory. And very interestingly, Tom, that there's really no new data involved in this project. One of the most fascinating things about what OMB's actually pulled off here is they're not requiring a whole bunch of new submissions from individual federal agencies. Virtually everything in this database comes from the existing uh, data feeds that go into usaspending.gov and sam.gov. What they've done here is consolidate all of that into a, I, I will say, a very well done federal website that is searchable, that allows you to go in and search by different types of programs that allows you to search by the name of a program um, or, or drill down into you know different attributes of a particular kind of program that you might care about. And importantly, then see performance data that's connected to each of those individual programs. So something that's been in the works for a very, very long time. OMB has uh, finally pulled it off. But uh, as we wrote about last week, definitely not the end of the road for this initiative. Because you're reporting that everything that is called a program in the government or by the government is not actually in this inventory. Correct. What they've what they've collected so far is the vast majority of annual federal spending. It's uh, just 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 shy of four and a half trillion dollars is what's in the inventory right now, spread across two thousand three hundred and eighty eight different programs. 
And what's represented in the inventory right now is just federal assistance listings. But that makes up a surprising amount to people like you and me who spend a lot of our time focusing on federal contracting. That makes up the lion's share of the federal budget if you just look at those federal assistance programs. I think what OMB has long recognized going back to the years when they, when they started these pilots back in the 2000-2001 time frame is those federal assistance listings were a logical place to start, not only because it makes up such a huge chunk of the federal spending pie, but because those domestic assistance programs tend to have the clearest connections between budget information, program information, and outcomes. They're very clearly spelled out for each one of these assistance listings, or at least most of them. One of the challenges when you look at the overall federal budget is there's no clear definition of what a program is. In fact, as I was looking through for doing some research for this story, I was surprised to learn that there was really no coherent definition of what a federal program is up until the 70s. And it can be harder to define what, depending on what kind of program you're talking about, whether you're talking about a defense program, for instance, none of which is in this inventory yet, or like I said, the much easier to categorize federal assistance listings. Right. A program can be primarily something that is an acquisition effort, or it can just have small acquisition associated with something larger, like a spending program for assistance, in which it's mainly appropriated funds for a specific purpose that the government gives out, but the only contracting that be connected with it would be you know, incidental to the operation of the uh, of the grants. Yeah, and one of the things that can make these assistance programs, as we said, a lot of them, 2,388, they're not necessarily all individual line items in agency budgets. So, you, you know, they're hard to track down through budget information. But what, what Congress can do now and what individual agency leaders who are involved in designing these programs uh, can do now for the first time ever, which is really important, is go into this inventory, search for the specific types of programs that they're interested in, see you know what exists already, look at the individual performance data for those programs, and then kind of use that to make decisions about, do we need a new program in this area? Should we start consolidating some of the existing programs for this particular category or purpose? And it, it's, it, it really may end up being a pretty powerful tool, again, both on the Hill and at the agency level for, for program design and, and evaluation of those outcomes. And what took them so long? You're reporting this really was ordered by the Government Performance and Results Act back in 2010, early on in the Obama administration. Yeah, you know, it's funny. I, I wrote that in our story last week. I said it, it took 13 years. And then a lot of our readers who are much more seasoned in this area pointed out, oh, it's been going on for much longer than that. This is kind of the holy grail of program data and has been for, for quite some time, really going back to the 50s, some people told me. But but yeah, as, as far as why this is all coming together now, I, I think it's been a steady drumbeat of pressure from Congress, from the Government Accountability Office, and then really a commitment on OMB's part to really drill down into the details of all the complex things that need to happen to get this done. OMB really started uh, digging into the nitty-gritty starting in the 2000-2001 timeframe when they came up with a detailed implementation plan and really described to the federal government and to OMB itself why this was so important after all of those years of of GAO talking about why it was important. And I will say, you know, that some of those program design and, and funding decision uh, abilities that I was talking about with the database, that that's that's what OMB sees as the real value here. A lot of what GAO has been saying over the years is one of the things this is going to let you do once you finally have this inventory in place is detect 
program duplication and potentially get rid of things that are duplicative. Um, you know, I know GAO likes to mention that a lot in its in its uh, high risk reports, for example. I asked OMB about that if they see that as an objective, and they were a little hesitant to go there because they really don't know what kind of duplication folks are going to find. And, and you know, duplication is also sometimes in the eye of the beholder. That sort of answers my next question. This is primarily intended for internal governmental use, or could it be useful to people visiting from the outside and trying to find something to help their business or their home or their or whatever? Yeah, I, th- I think that's a really important point, Tom, and I've, I've focused a lot on the internal government uses. But, but OMB's hope is that this ends up being really useful as well to folks like potential grant recipients so they can see what kinds of programs already exist out there. You know, it can be a little hard to search for uh, in the system for awards management to see what sorts of things are available in terms of grants for the particular kind of thing you might be trying to fund. You you, you know, you got to be looking at Sam at the exact right time, et cetera. In contrast, this inventory will show you what the government historically has spent on a particular program or category of programs historically. And, and the data is pretty up to date as far as these things go. The, the, the data sources, the main ones, SAM and, um, and USAspending.gov are being scraped once a month. So you've got pretty up to date data. They've got quite a bit of information about fiscal 2024 in there already. Yes, because the government has a history of starting these type of projects, member data.gov started right. with a lot of fanfare and kind of fizzled. Is there a sustainability plan for this for perpetuity? Yeah, I don't know about perpetuity, but but OMB really does see this as um, a milestone in the sense that it's the fundamental building block that they want to continue to build off of. One of the main things they want to focus in on is, is again, this area of how do you find pro- d- define programs. They've relied on agencies to, to kind of help make decisions about how to group things together into the line items that exist in the inventory now. There's going to be a lot of refinement over that over time, probably, as things get combined into a quote-unquote program or split apart into multiple programs in the way that they're categorized now. So that's one thing. Another thing, going back to what GAO thinks needs to happen here, is, is a big missing area so far here is tax expenditures. So this is not including things like tax credits um, in a particular area, which are obligations for government accounting purposes. So that's another big area that we can probably expect to see added to the database in the coming years. And perhaps it could prevent some duplication if agencies can discover when they want to do something, or even Congress wants them to do something, that the mechanism is already there. They just have to exercise it. That's right. Maybe refine the program terms, maybe add funding to kind of a framework that already exists that's gotten not as much attention as it might need as, as you know, conditions have ebbed and flowed over the years. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. Federal News Network's Jared Serbu. Thanks so much. Thanks, Tom. And be sure to check out his story at federalnewsnetwork.com. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin. For the latest updates, stay with federalnewsnetwork.com or follow us on Facebook and LinkedIn. I'm Tom Temin. 